what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. We're all originals. You've all made America better, a better place, and you've made it seem a better place in the eyes of the people of the world. I'm Ian Wilder. I'm Fiona Hatch. I'm Sarah Nels. I'm Tyler Katzenberger. And I'm Allison Keeley. You're listening to 1050 Bascom, a podcast brought to you by the UW-Madison Political Science Department. Welcome to a special edition of 1050 Bascom. On this episode, we'll be presenting a panel discussion on the conflict in Gaza. The panel, hosted by the UW-Madison Middle East Studies Program on November 29th, took an expert look at multiple different facets of the ongoing Israel-Hamas conflict. Professor and Political Science Department Chair John Peavy House moderated the panel. Other panelists were Associate Professor of Political Science and Middle East Studies Program Director Stephen Brook, Assistant Political Science Professor Marwa Shalabi, and Political Science Professor Nadav Shalif. We hope you enjoyed this discussion and find it enlightening, as we know we did. I want to start, uh, again, working through a few of these questions. These will obviously bring up other questions people will want to ask. Uh, but to start off, uh, I'm going to start with Marwa, if I could, and ask Marwa just to give us a quick background and information on Gaza itself, some of the kind of political, historical background, uh, and kind of to get us rolling to make sure we're all kind of on the same page uh, in terms of information. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for coming. I'm very happy to see um, it, all of you here tonight to talk about this important issue. It's also today marks the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people, so we couldn't find a, a better day to talk about this. I would like to start by thanking John Pevy House, of course, and uh, the Middle East Program and the Political Science Department for holding this event. I'm actually very proud being part of an institution that fosters discussion and free speech even in controversial and on topics that we don't really want to talk about much. Um, I want to first to start by expressing my deepest condolences to the civilian lives lost on October 7th uh, as a result of the Hamas attacks. Um, their number now, 1,200 Israelis were killed and more than 200 hostages were captured uh, by Hamas. So some were released, but there's still many under Hamas control. We are all heartbroken with the loss and lives uh, on the rising death, death toll over the past few weeks among the Palestinians. A humanitarian pause, as you all know, took place since Friday after 49 days of non-stop bombing of Gaza. As of last Friday, more than two-thirds of Gaza's 2.2 million population were displaced. 15,000 civilians were killed, including 6,100 children and 4,000 women. In other words, if you just do the math, a Palestinian child was killed every 10 minutes in the 49 days of conflict. So as I, as I promised, I want to provide uh, some demographic and very simple facts about Gaza. I think it's an important step for us to differentiate between reality and facts and between myths or misinformation. So fact one, Gaza is 1.4 the size of Madison. Gaza is a very small area. Uh, it is, um, it's roughly, although it's, it's only 1.4 the, the size of Madison, it has roughly 10 times the population of Madison. So imagine how densely populated Gaza is. Um, according to the UN refugee agencies, 1.5 million of Gaza's population, or two-thirds of Gaza's populations, are already refugees who were displaced from territories captured by Israel in 1948, as you hear in the news a lot about the Nakba. 
Gaza was under the Egyptian rule until Israel occupied Gaza after the Six-Day War in 1967, which created another refugee crisis. For more than two decades and until the onset of the Intifada, first Intifada in 1987, Gaza was under Israeli military rule, with deteriorating economic and living conditions, exploitation of Palestinian workers, suppressed political and civil rights. The Oslo Accords took place in 1993. Israel agreed to withdraw its military from Gaza, yet conflict in Gaza never stopped. So many of you didn't know, the, it was always a state of war in Gaza. So it's not the first war, and it's not gonna be the last war. So it's never even ended. So various confrontations took place with the Israeli military in 2008, 2011, 2012, 2014, 2019, 2021, and which resulted in more than 3,400 deaths of the Palestinians and 1,500 wounded, and of course, a killing of 185 Israelis over, uh, over this period of time. So the fact too, that we also, I think, important for us to talk about is how Hamas came to power in 2006, and how the, since the, this Hamas coming to power, Gaza has been described as an open air prison. Others call it a concentration camp with an air, sea, and land blockade most young people never left Gaza, never, or even voted for Hamas. Israel, supported by Egypt, prevented Palestinian authorities from operating an airport, seaport in Gaza. Israeli authorities and the Egyptians sharply restricted entry and exit of goods and civilians. So basically living in Gaza in 2020 meant confinement in one of the most densely populated spaces in the world without electricity half the time without adequate access to clean water or a proper sewage system, right before the attacks, the unemployment rate in Gaza was 45%. It was the average monthly earning is $200. And while 80% of the population continued to be dependent on international aid. So a study released in 2022 by Save the Children Organization, which, which, is a, uh, which is an independent organization, reported that four out of five children in Gaza live with depression, grief, and fear. The report also found that more than half of Gaza's children have contemplated suicide. Today, Gaza is on a brink of famine, and we're talking today with the attacks of the October 7th attacks. Um, is on the verge of famine, as, as stated by the director of the UN World Corp, uh, Food Program, in addition to the total destruction of schools, mosques, hospitals, and multiple UN-run facilities. Um, I'm gonna stop here. I think this is gonna give a very brief summary about what we had in Gaza before the attacks. I'm happy to talk more about what's after the attacks and how things look like, but I think this is an important context that we put in place uh, before we move forward. Great, thank you for that. Um, I'm going to turn to Stephen next uh, and ask, um, what, in your mind, what were Hamas's goals, or what do you read as ha were Hamas's goals in the October 7 attacks? Yeah, um, thanks. Thanks, everybody, for, for being here, taking time out at this point in the semester. And I also just kind of want to join uh, Marwa and, and, and kind of endorse what she said just about the, the condolences. And I think one, one other thing that is just worth kind of keeping in mind in these moments is that you know, before we think of kind of Israelis and Palestinians or before we think of statistics on, on, on death is that we just realize, like, you know, these are all people, right? I mean, these are all people that have hopes and dreams and they had futures that are, you know, cut short or kind of irreparably changed. And, and just making sure that when we talk about these issues, we kind of consistently come back to that point, right? Like, these are, these are real people. Um, 
so I think when we kind of think about what Hamas wants, I mean, it's there's a couple of different ways to read it, right? You know, one of them is just, you know, Hamas was kind of clear about some of their aims, right? So they wanted the, you know, the release of Palestinian, Palestinian detainees that, that were held in Israel. They wanted kind of an end to the settlement uh, expansion in the West Bank. Um, they wanted kind of an end to the depredations against Al-Aqsa in, in Jerusalem, right? So these are kind of things they were very open about when they, when they publicized, um, you know, when they, when they publicized the, the attacks. And I think we as political scientists have also kind of found other ways to think about the rationale behind these, right? And so one of, one of the, the ways that we can kind of think about these attacks is as part of maybe domestic political competition with rivals inside the Palestinian community, right? So here we're thinking of, of Fatah. And so that the, the, the attacks are kind of directed obviously outward, but there's also one eye towards kind of trying to improve Hamas's position vis-a-vis -vis their, their domestic political opponents. Uh, another way to think about it too is just kind of put it in the context of what's happened over the last couple of years. I mean, one of the ideas of, of I think kind of the, the, the Israeli government, but also the United States is, kind of to, to kind of push forward on kind of the sidelining of the Palestinian issue to try and kind of sequester it, to kind of seal it off and move forward with kind of plans, you know, normalization plans, agreements between, you know, Israel and uh, selected Arab countries kind of almost over the heads of the Palestinians, right? And so this is kind of a, a moment when, you know, we, we, can, we can maybe think about whether kind of what Hamas was trying to do was kind of dramatically kind of change that status quo that they saw as occurring, potentially kind of taking that Palestinian issue off the table, right? And I think we can, we can kind of discuss that uh, a little bit more as, as we get into maybe some of these other questions. All right, thanks. So um, now I'll turn to Nadav next and say, if we've talked about the uh, motivations of uh, Hamas, uh, can you talk a little bit about sort of on the Israeli side and the Israeli response? to October 7, kind of the politics behind that. Sure, I think also there's more to say about Hamas's motivations. Come back to, come back to that, I think Stephen's yeah. right. Um, so I think Israel's response has, I think, um, two openly stated goals, right? Two tacit goals and um, one goal that I wish was there, but it's probably not. Right? So in terms of its openly stated goals, it's first to return as many of the hostages as they can. Right? That's certainly what the Israeli population prioritizes more than anything else. The second is uh, phrased in different ways in different times. The destruction of Hamas, the degradation of Hamas's ability to rule the Gaza Strip, its eviction from the Gaza Strip, whatever that, whatever that looks like. And I'm not sure anybody knows, but that's at least the range of ways in which they think about them. There are also, I think, two non, there are two goals that are, uh, I think, commonly understood as guiding Israeli behavior, but that are not formally stated by the government. Um, one uh, is a restoration of uh, Israeli feelings of security. One of the things that Hamas was able to do on October 7th is just terrify everybody in Israel. Uh, to the extent that uh, Israel has evacuated everyone who lives within a certain distance, not just of the Gaza Strip, but also of 
the northern border with uh, Lebanon. Uh, people are just afraid that the same thing is going to happen to them. And so one of the tacit goals of the government is to restore civilian sense of, uh, of security, which has been shattered. The other tacit goal is actually has nothing to do with the Palestinians, but speaks to Hezbollah in Lebanon. So what Hamas achieved on October 7th has been Hezbollah's declared goal for a long time. Uh, and it's just they haven't carried it out. And Hezbollah is a much stronger organization. It's a much more sophisticated organization. And so one of the, one of the reasons driving Israel's response is part of a signaling game, right? We want to show Hezbollah that if they want to try and do something like this in the future, things would be very bad in, uh, in Lebanon. So that's one of the tacit goals. Uh, and then I think there ought to be a goal. I'm not confident that there is one which is the use of the events as a springboard for thinking about what happens the day after. Uh, and here, you know, there's a lot of civil society conversation in Israel about what happens afterwards. Uh, but uh, talk about whether or not the Israeli government is actually sort of thinking about that in any, uh, any sort of important sense. Okay, great. Um, let me do one more round and then we'll kind of open it up. Um, let me ask uh, Marwa, one of the questions and the things a lot of, has gotten a lot of attention in the current conflict is, as you mentioned, kind of the high death rate. Yeah. That, and I wanted to ask you about that. And you know, is that just simply a function of density? Are there other factors behind that? And just to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a very painful, it's a very painful topic to talk about, but I will try my best. So I think why is the death toll is so high, and especially among women and children? My students always ask me this question, and the most frequent answer that you will find in the news and 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 in social media, yeah, because Hamas uses civilians as human shields. So this is the most common answer. But what we know is that this claim is unsubstantiated by facts and accounts on the ground. They lend no evidence for this claim. The fact, actually, that we know is Gaza is, as I mentioned, is a very densely populated area which according to the UN population, approximation on average 15, 7, 600 people live in every square mile of the territory. So this is why the death toll is so high more generally. Why women and children, fact four, Gaza has a very young population. Half of the population of the Palestinian territories are younger than 18 years old. So much higher share than the average of other upper middle income countries, such as Iraq for instance. The death toll is very simple, it's a very simple math. It's very proportional to the demographic structure of Gaza. There is nothing unique about the, the, the numbers that we're receiving, they're very proportional. During the, the numbers is, is, is alarming, but it's proportional to the population. So on October 8th, a month after, and, and the problem was also with what we're seeing, the death toll, there is no end in sight. Like the, we now there are four days of these humanitarian troops, but, but what is the goal? So Israel, until this point, we don't understand what the goal is. I mean, Nadav kindly kind of outlined some, but but since the the, the, the start of war, this is on November 8th, uh, a month after the start of the of the Gaza war, and after the death of 10,000 civilians already, the IDF spokesperson, um, uh, Jonathan Curtis, if you want to know his name, he announced that they were able to kill 60 Hamas leaders, right, on, on November 8th. So let's do very simple math here. So that means that Israel had to kill 170 civilians to get rid of one Hamas leader. 
So if if you again if you do like the if you if you in, and, and in some cases even the bombing of the Jabalia refugee camp, one of the Gaza's largest refugee camps, where four hundred civilians were killed and injured to target one Hamas leader. So according to the CIA, the size of a Hamas organization ranges between 20,000 to 25,000 members. So if we do the mass, and this is a scenario that I don't even imagine, that's the entire Gaza population is not enough. So if we need 170 civilians to get the group, we need like 3.2 million civilians. We don't even have that much people in Gaza without an ethnic cleansing of the entire Gaza Strip. So I'm not sure what's the end goal and how this will end. Like there must be, there must be an, an, an immediate ceasefire. The goal to eradicate every member of Hamas, as they say, is an unattainable goal without an immense civilian suffering, if not a complete ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. So the, there is nothing, again, as Israeli journalist uh, Gideon Levy, as he said, there is nothing cheaper than Palestinian lives in Israel. They, they see the Palestinians' lives as inferior, and it's okay, and it doesn't matter, and that's why the killing doesn't really matter. But these are not, but for us here in the US and the way we support Israel, this is not our core values. This is not what we should be like asking and pushing Israel to do. This kind of unwavering support of Israel. If Israel, if the US really cares about the Israel's stability in the region and its welfare, they must put all these efforts for a peaceful resolution rather than more and more violence and more and more killing in the region. So, so I'll stop here and have to talk more uh, the students have uh, questions. So let me shift now. Um, you mentioned the international uh, dimension more. Let me shift to Stephen quickly. Then I'm going to give all three of you a, a chance to follow up here. Um, uh, Stephen, the international side of things, what has been kind of the international reaction? Mara went to the United States, mm -hmm. of course, but there's lots of actors in the region and, and in the world, and, and what has been kind of the global response to this? Yeah, I mean, I think in the Middle East, one thing that I've been kind of struck by is that there has been kind of rhetorical statements of support for the Palestinians, but any type of action has come from kind of non-state actors, right? So it's either, it's Hezbollah, it's Kataib, the, the brigades in, in Iraq, um, it's the Houthis in Yemen, right, that are the ones that are actually carrying out attacks um, or, or trying to carry out attacks in some way in, re in response to this. And I think, like, if, if you look around the neighborhood, I mean, the, the states kind of bordering Israel, right, Jordan and Lebanon, you think about those states, and, you know, they are each hosting, like, one and a half million Syrian refugees already, right, it, particularly in Lebanon. The economy is, is in shambles. I think kind of the the memories of the prior conflict with Hezbollah in 2006, right, which left a, a kind of tremendous civilian toll in Lebanon. I think the politics of Lebanon all kind of influence it to kind of try and and kind of stay out or, or kind of keep the keep the conflict from from spilling over the borders, right? I mean, Hezbollah has has you know incentives to do what it's going to do. I think that that's true. I think. Jordan also is probably most concerned about the prospect of an intifada, a general uprising in the West Bank, right, which would kind of compound its, its issues that it already has with kind of the Palestinian population. It would kind of much more directly affect it than, than Gaza just because it's spatially proximate. 
Um, I think Marwa is, is right if we, if we think about Egypt, right? I mean, Egypt was kind of part of this security architecture of hemming in Gaza, of kind of preventing, you know, maintaining the blockade through, through their crossing. And I think if you kind of imagine from the Egyptian perspective, right, there's a few things that they're worried about. Um, you know, one, right, like they are intensely worried that Gaza is going to be depopulated or ethnically cleansed and those people are going to be pushed into Egypt, right? Like that is where they would go. And there have been kind of various trial balloons that have been floated, kind of serious or not, I don't know, about like, will Egypt take these? Can we do something to kind of convince the Egyptians to take in these refugees? Can we, can we basically bribe them with, with international aid or wiping out their debt to do this? I think Egypt is terrified of this possibility, right? I mean, Egypt, as, as my, my, my friend and colleague Tarek Massoud says, like the Egyptians struggle to govern themselves. Like, can you imagine Egypt with, you know, one and a half million impoverished, radicalized, frustrated Palestinians among them, Hamas fighters, right? Egypt is already looking at a domestic insurgency in the Sinai Peninsula, right? Uh, and, led by kind of the Egyptian branch of the Islamic State. And if you imagine yourself as like an Egyptian military official, right, and you wake up in the morning and you try and think about your country's situation, right, you have a civil war in the south in Sudan, you have a civil war in the west in Libya, and you have this situation on your northern border, right? And so I think kind of the Egyptians are very much concerned that this is potentially going to result in even more destabilization that they can't afford. And so you really do see Egypt kind of working to try and diffuse the situation. Um, but I would say like the, the interesting thing in all of these cases is the disconnect between the government's official positions and the popular frustrations with those government positions, right? I mean, people in these countries understand their, their their governments are basically subcontracted to the U.S. to maintain the security order, right? This is not like a new thing to them. And so, you know, they're good at repressing dissent, right? They're good at keeping the wraps on their populations. Um, but, you know, at some point, right, like the, the frustration and popular mobilization, uh, it can kind of quickly turn on these governments. And so I think those are kind of their, their big concerns. Um, speaking of governments, so, Nadav, I want to ask you about the Israeli domestic political context in this. I mean, obviously, before this happened, Israel was in the news all summer based on sort of the domestic upheaval that was happening with the current government. How has this played into to help them? How has this hurt them? What is kind of the what are the domestic fallout from this for Israel? Sure. Um, before I get to that, I want to so. Um, I think I disagree with Marwa. I think there's plenty of evidence that Hamas uses civilian infrastructure and civilians as to protect its activities. I don't think there's actually a question about that. Um, but I think it also doesn't matter, right? It's Hamas's, um, in any asymmetric conflict, right, the weaker group seeks to go the stronger group into hitting them as hard as they can so that their story about the other group resonates, right? This is why terrorists hit police stations, right? Because when the cops get angry, they react. They are, they don't care about the other opposition group, and so they react with excess excess force. This is sort of true of any asymmetric conflict like this. 
and, and so, and Hamas in a sense, and one of their leaders gave a really candid interview in London a few weeks ago, which kind of shocked me, where he said, you know, somebody asked him about the civilian death toll, and they said, dead Palestinians aren't our problem. Right, they're the, inter the international community will take care of them, right? We're gonna deal with the, with the fighting. I think Hamas wants, that's the strategy. Let's make, let's have Israel overreact. Let's, knowing that Israel react emotionally to what happened, uh, this may be one explanation for the brutality, right? It's an attempt to elicit this emotional reaction. Uh, I don't know if that is the answer, but it's at least one way of, of understanding that. Uh, and so what you have as a consequence is, is the kind of horrors that you, that you described. Um, all right, onto the, the Israeli government. Um, so I think there's a sense, you know, I, so I will say, I think we don't know yet what the fallout, what this will be. A lot will depend on how things turn out from Israel's perspective for the current, uh, for the current government. Um, there is a sense in which the conflict, um, uh, provided or you know, sort of shifted the conversation in Israel away from the, the sort of internal argument about uh, the role of judiciary and what democracy means inside Israel and those things to the question of what to do with the Palestinians. If this was one of Hamas's goals, that succeeded for now, right? For the last five, six years, Israelis didn't particularly care about what happened to the Palestinians. They were not an issue. People weren't thinking in terms of a resolution. It was just not a salient issue. Uh, we'll see if it becomes one again. I suspect, I suspect it will be. Uh, it's also sort of given life a little bit to Netanyahu in the sense that now he, um, uh, so it's, it's kind of a mixed bag. So on the one hand, he's responsible since he was person in charge. So he's seen as one of the failure. Um, uh, but he's been able to frame things whenever he's been in those positions, always to, at least in the past, to his advantage. And it's enabled him to recast himself as a leader in time of war. Everybody should unify behind me, and later we'll figure out what happens. And so this is one of the incentives of the Israeli government, to drag this on as long as possible. Because if, you, if you're only going to wait till later to assign blame, right, then you have an incentive to push things later as much as possible. Uh, on the other hand, it's also brought into the government relatively more centrist groups. So before this conflict started, Israel was governed by a sort of homogeneously right-wing coalition. Uh, and now, under the auspices of an attempt to generate more domestic support for what Israel is doing, they brought in a relatively more centrist uh, party. So in a sense, that kind of moderates the Israeli government, but also extends its lifespan, right? Because if the government was more unpopular, it probably wouldn't last last as long. I think the difficult thing for the Israeli government is what's going to happen tomorrow or in two days when the ceasefire ends with part of the government saying like we need to push to get as many of the hostages out um, and listen to the United States because ultimately Israel's dependent on the United States so there's only so much that um, Israel can buck what the United States asks it to do and those in the government who say we should continue fighting no matter what the right. If those folks leave the government, then it will fall, and there will be new, uh, and then there will be new elections. So I think we just we don't know. I think the only way this helps the Israeli government, the, the Netanyahu, is if they're somehow able to achieve sort of a picture of victory. 
I don't know if that's possible, right? And so it's, um, it seems unlikely that it'll help them in the long run. John, we have just two fingers on what yeah. Doc said. I think me and Adobe agree that Hamas does not care about the civilians. They don't care. Hamas does never care. They don't care. But I think, and I think this is why we're seeing, if they cared about the civilians, it wouldn't have happened from the very beginning, in, in a way, right? But I think also what we, what we, what I also think a lot about, if Hamas managed to hide in tunnels under a dense neighborhood in Tel Aviv, would Israel do the same thing, bomb the entire neighborhood the, the way they're doing right now? I think this is the point I'm trying to make. Even if, assuming that Hamas is using pe uh, people as human shields, I'm talking about the choices that what we're making here, right? So would, would it do the same thing if you start like in, in an Israeli neighborhood? I don't, I, I don't believe so. so. So I think, and this is where I, this is where I think me and you um, disagree, but I agree with you that I don't think Hamas cared or cared about this, this, the civilian lives that are, are what we're living right now. Sounds fair. Actually, yeah. let me roll that to question then quickly to both Marwa, you and Stephen. We talked about international, we talked about Israeli side. What about within the Palestinian community? Like what are the kind of what are the dynamics there between Fatah, between the PA, of course, Fatah very closely aligned, um, Hamas, PIJ, all these groups, like what how is this shaken or do we know much about how this has transformed what's going on in the in the Palestinian community politically? Hamas is much more popular now than it was yeah. on October 6th. Yeah. I think that's the, with the that's at least the short term. Yeah. Hamas is gaining all of, if you look at the celebrations that are greeting the uh, released uh, Palestinian prisoners, right? You have people in Hamas gear uh, in the West Bank uh, celebrating them. And so I think one of the, I think Stephen brought this up, whatever, but one of, one of the lenses that's going, you know, so we have all these different lenses for looking at these things, and they're not mutually exclusive, right? There are multiple things going on at the same time. In domestic Palestinian politics, the people who don't want to reach an accommodation with Israel are now on the ascendant. They're, at least in the short term, stronger. Hamas is reaping the political benefits uh, of this, which is one of the reasons the Israeli goal of defeating Hamas by doing this doesn't seem I think if you look at the prisoners uh, 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 exchange that's happening right now, the strategy, you would think Hamas would start with telling Israel, release, as they always did before, release our own people. This time they didn't do that. They said, we're going to release the children and the women. And, and they put the terms of the release, right? So interesting because Hamas knew and they were very sure that right before the attack they were losing popularity in the Gaza Strip. Every single public opinion survey came out of Gaza. They was saying that Hamas is losing popularity. People are sick of the economic conditions and the blockade and, and they're even they're willing to do a two-state solution and we are done of this blockade and this, this we have no future. People knew that. So and Hamas knew that they're losing popularity. So these tried two things now. So first, they wanted to get the prisoners, or women and children, to uh, to to improve their image and popularity, as as Nadav said. And at the same time, they're they're releasing people from the West Bank too, where Abbas and his government are con they're controlling. So they're even trying to show the people in the West the Palestinians in the West Bank see this useless government that you have. We're better than them. 
We are the one who's gonna make you get your prisoners back. We are the one who's negotiating. We are on the negotiation table now with Israel. So, so they gained so much over the, the, I am not sure, like I think Israel like benefited Hamas way more than they, they, they think. And, and again, as, as Zandav said, how would you define success in this, in this, in the success of the operation? Because you were having so much fall, you're killed like only a hundred or two Hamas fighters out of 20, 25,000. Like, how would you define the success of your operation? You didn't get any of the big leaders of Hamas. You didn't. So, so I'm not sure what is this kind of success will look like, what this accomplishment will look like. But for now, it's actually the within Palestinian territories, as, as your question, Hamas is winning. Hamas is scoring. We are the ones who are, we got the Israelis underneath, so talk to us. So, so yeah, so this is the reality. So at least that's the short term. Like, we don't know what the long term effects will be because we're still in the middle of this, right? You can imagine a world, let's imagine where the fighting stops and the PA takes over running the Gaza Strip. Just imagine. There is a scenario in which that helps them, but that seems less likely right now than the alternative, which is Hamas becomes more, more popular. Stephen, did you want to add anything to that? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I fully agree with this. I mean, I think, uh, you know, one way to think about this is, right, like, what is Fatah able to sell to the Palestinians that they have achieved in the last decade, right? I mean, they've managed to sit by while the settlement expansion has just dramatically increased. There's no prospects for peace, that it's dead, right? Peace processes are being negotiated way over the heads of the Palestinians, right? Like they have nothing to kind of sell, right? And this is, you know, partially their fault, right? But, you know, it's, it's also just because of the structural factors that they're dealing with. But when you set that up against what Hamas is able to make of the October 7th attacks, right, and its aftermath, we get the prisoners out, we're now negotiating with Israel, Palestine is back on the agenda, right, in terms of talks and nationally, like there's all this attention directed to it. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty powerful thing. I mean, I think Nadav is right that, you know, we want to just m make sure that we don't kind of, we, 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 we potentially separate some short-term and longer-term impacts, right? There's always obviously going to be a rally around the flag effect, right? It's hard to know in the midst of all of the fighting, right? There's all these kind of questions we might have about how deep this support actually goes and what, what are its actual dimensions, right? If it's for the policy positions, is it for the movement, is it just solidarity and conditions of wartime? But I, I do think it's pretty stark, right? Like what, what Hamas was, was able to highlight about the differences between their two approaches. All right, thank you all. I think we might move to take some questions from the folks in the audience, if there are any, anyone who wants to add? Sure, that's all. Yeah, uh, I just, I guess it was for Stephen from starting parties, but to what extent uh, is like Hamas like a normal, uh, uh, I guess Islamist party with a sort of military, militant leaning? Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe, you know, compare it with other uh, Islamist parties in the region, compare it to Fatah. Uh, I don't know if they, I don't know much about the situation. I don't know if they have a militant wing as well. Uh, and it's sort of focus on the single issue of sort of, you know, Palestinian liberation versus other parties which are more like concerned with governing countries. Mm -hmm. And sort of how does that <coughs> affect negotiations? The fact that sort of um, it's a governing party, it's fighting, it has this sort of single minded focus, and yeah, mm. just that issue. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, I think, you know, part of it, it just comes down to, you know, when you look at this organization, 
are you going to treat it as kind of a, a an organization that acts mostly rationally at most times, or are you going to treat it as kind of a purely ideological-driven organization? I mean, I think that's a mistake, right? It's, it, I, I think it's, most of what it does can be interpreted clearly in kind of these more rational paradigms. I think one thing that it does do differently than other Islamist movements, like the kind of Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood or, or whatever, the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood, is it does have this explicit armed wing, right? And it's kind of tried to, you know, to, to, to varying degrees to kind of divorce or de-emphasize that, but, but it, it's pretty clear. It's part of the same organization, answering to the same leadership. Um, but I would also say, like, when we think about the armed wing of Hamas and particularly kind of the, the ideology behind what Hamas is doing, it is also extremely important to draw a distinction between an organization like Hamas and the way they, they see violence and an organization like Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State, right? Like the, the whole kind of theological architecture behind the way that those groups think about violence, the legitimacy of targets, means and ends, like the, it, it's all completely different. And I think it's a really kind of dramatic error and a really meaningful error to conflate them, right? Analytically, you just you just can't do it, right? And so I think while we think about Hamas as like a political organization, it was put into the position of governing, we never honestly really got to see how Hamas was governed because of kind of an attempt to get it out of power, right, by kind of the U.S. and some regional allies right after it won the, the victory in 2005. Um, but I think largely we can kind of consider it as political party, political actor responds mostly to political incentives, and it's and it and thinking about it in that way is a lot more insightful than maybe we think about some other organizations that we might initially kind of put into that same basket. Question? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I have like two questions. A lot, I guess. First one is, why doesn't Israel amount all its forces to go into Gaza Strip and just overwhelm? Hamas uh, government there, and then in a like imaginary world, if they did do that, what is in your opinion does Israel hope to achieve when they do that? Like, do they plan to rebuild the Gaza Strip and implement them into their own government, or do they plan to just like say we're done and just walk out again? Or yeah. Um. So the first question is hard to answer. Um, you know, I think Israel has the physical capability to do what you suggest. Um, but in the, to quote our former colleague, Mike Barnett, right, it can always get worse, right? And I think Israel's not doing that in order for it not to, get, not to be worse than it is. Because, um, uh, you know, an army marching across a civilian population would look even worse than what is out there now. So that's, I think... Um, I think that's part of it. It would also extract many more Israeli casualties. And the Israeli government is very, very sensitive to that. Um, I think the government doesn't know what it's going to do the day after. Uh, and I think that I think there are people in the government who want Israel to reoccupy the Gaza Strip and incorporate it into Israel, not the population. Right? They're not interested in giving the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip voting rights in, uh, in Israel. But they want to reassert Israeli control over the Gaza Strip. Uh, most Israelis and most of the government and the army it has no interest in doing that. Israel withdrew from the interior of the Gaza Strip in 2005 because controlling it in that way was untenable. Uh, and so I think that that's 
so they don't really have an interest in doing that. They're not, they don't know what will happen next. Uh, so they don't have a good answer for that. I think they're stuck because the sort of, you know, from a political science, political science perspective, you'd want a group to monitor itself, right? Because Fatah is gonna have a much better sense or any Palestinian group about what's going on on the street among Palestinians than Israel ever will. And so internal policing is always more effective. And so the goal is to get groups to internally police themselves. Um, but the current Israeli government doesn't want to do that because if that happens, that opens the door to moving towards a, uh, some sort of division of the land or two-state solution that they're not in, that the current government's not interested in. Uh, and so I, that's why I think they're kind of stuck and they don't know. And there's kind of this, I think, um, decision not to think about the day after, which I think is, uh, it's helpful politically in the short term for the government, but I think doesn't, the day after will come, right? And so I think they're not, uh, they're not set for those. If the um, Likud party, like hypothetically, if they were not the leading party in Israel, do you think um, Israel's response to October 7th um, would, would have been different than it already is, or would it mostly have been the same? Yeah, so it's really hard to answer that question. Um, I actually think it would look, I think it would look roughly the same. I think there would be different conversations about the day after. I think what you see people on the left in Israel arguing is that in order to, that Hamas has, they interpret Hamas's actions as showing that Hamas is not a trustworthy interlocutor for long-term conversations, right? And that Hamas is interested in just in destroying Israel, just in killing Jews, and so there's, no, there's nothing to talk about them with. Right, so that's how they're interpreting that. And so from their perspective, defeating Hamas, whatever that looks like, is good for long-term peace because it would strengthen moderate forces among Palestinians. So that's how, they, that's how they interpret this. Not that might be wrong, but that's how they at least interpret that, uh, what's going on. So that's why I think in the immediate term, a lot of the fighting would look quite similar. Yeah, I, just if, if I can piggyback there, I mean, this is useful. We're, like we're trying to kind of think counterfactually here, like what would the response be if there was someone else in charge or some other party in charge? And I think, you know, if you, if you, if you think about Israeli kind of security doctrine, right, it has always been massive, overwhelming response and deterrence, right? So like every time it's attacked, it's, it's go, go back 10 times harder, right? And so in that sense, I, I do think it would be the same. And, and, and we can also just, you know, keep in mind like this was the largest loss of civilian life in Israel like ever right this was all I mean since like the founding I suppose this was also a moment when like Israeli military divisions were overrun on Israeli soil like that has never happened before right there have been sporadic defeats like in the Sinai and in the Golan in the Yom Kippur war but like on Israeli soil like battalions being overrun I mean the shock of this, right, was, was really intense. So I, I do think in one sense, like, if someone else was in charge, you would see a lot of similarities to, to this current response. Now, I think, like, the character of Netanyahu makes this, like, a really kind of tricky counterfactual, right? Because in one sense, it is kind of a referendum on a policy that he was very instrumental in doing of kind of, well, you know, this idea of if you elect me, you won't have to think about the Palestinians, and it's kind of a, a, a pretty dramatic shattering of that, that bargain. So maybe that does complicate it a little bit. Um, with one of Hamas's speculated goals being uh, prolonging the regime's 
overlapping with like normalization of relations with Saudi Arabia and Israel. Um, what does that look like now and in the future? Like, has it been like prolonged for a long time, or um, just should be stopped? I don't know, Marwa, do you? about why Hamas did that. And one of the theories about the attacks is that they wanted to stop the normalization uh, uh, ties with Saudi Arabia. Personally, me, Marwa, I can be wrong. I don't think Hamas cares much about that. Um, I think maybe they cared about the funding that they, they, they get from the Gulf states. Maybe that if the normalization happens with Israel, their funding sources will be significantly cut because they get a lot of funding from from the Gulf monarchies, from Iran, they get a lot of funding from the countries because they don't have it's they don't have sources to, to, to get revenue other than tax exempt from Egypt, but that's it. But so so I think a lot people I think put a lot of weight on the, the, this process and that, that this, the normalization with Saudi Arabia was one of the triggers. I doubt it. I think the Saudis for a long time now they are not part of the like they're never they're not negotiating. Like look at the net, look look now. Saudi Arabia is not part of the negotiating or mediating, nothing. So, so I don't, I don't, I think we're giving the the the, the normalization with Saudi Arabia so much more weight than and uh, for for Hamas. I think this was done more for domestic politics and more a competition between the groups and more of them trying to reestablish their power and influence rather than uh, rather than actually more of an external uh, um, uh, source of triggers. But that, that's what I think. I'm not sure. Um, so I guess I, I agree with your bottom line, but I think for a different reason. Okay. I think the group that has, a group among Palestinians that has an incentive to undercut the agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia is Fatah, right? Because this agreement gives Israel what it wants without Israel having to make any concessions to the Palestinians, right? So it gives them something for nothing from the Palestinian perspective. So if you're in a bargaining framework and you want to reach an, a deal with Israel, then that, and this will make the deal that you get worse because you no longer have recognition from Saudi Arabia to give, sort of in quotes, in quotes Israel. I'm not sure Hamas is interested in bargaining with Israel over long-term relations. I think they were in the past. I don't know that today that they, uh, that they are. And for that reason, I think it's not clear that that mattered so much, uh, so much to them. But again, I think we also, we also don't know. I mean, I do think, you know, Hamas is also, we're talking about it like a unitary entity, but it has its own leadership divisions. Those in the Gaza Strip, those outside of the Gaza Strip, those in the political wing, those in the military wing, and their rivalries, and their different attitudes, and then different long-term visions. Uh, and there's some coordination, but not complete coordination. And so I think, it's, I think we're in this state where we, we're doing a lot of guessing, and it's guessing based on kind of some knowledge about the past and some sort of political science theories that lead us to expect certain things, but we just don't know yet. Okay, sure. It's a, a related question, so I'm wondering actually like uh, the role of actually Iran in this conflict. So it seems to me that Iran would have more to benefit from blocking the Abraham process perhaps, because um, this would be actually like normalizing ties with its, its enemies as well, right? And so I'm wondering actually, and also there's some speculation that Hamas would be able to pull off the attack without their support or funding from Iran. Don't know how much that is true, but I'm wondering actually what can we see this as more of a proxy for the conflict of some sort, or is this contained within the Israeli Palestinian conflict? Stephen, 
I don't think it's an Iranian thing, right? Um, I think it's, uh, I, you know, it's kind of hard because everything leads in the same direction, right? So it's really hard to disentangle the, the stuff. But um, there's no evidence that, so Iran certainly funds Hamas. Iran certainly kind of benefits from the rupture between Israel and other Arab uh, states. You know, um, Iran, if I throw Russia in there, benefit with the United States' um, attention being diverted from Ukraine, the world's attention diverted from Ukraine. Um, so there are all sorts of sort of other things going on. I, um, so I, but I don't think it was a cause of it, right? There's sufficient evidence to suggest that Iran was as surprised on October 7th as everybody, as at least Israel and everybody and everybody else. That doesn't mean it can't devolve into a proxy war after the fact, right? And I think that that is, um, I think that's why we sent carrier groups into the Mediterranean and into the and into the Persian Gulf, right, to try and prevent that from happening. And you do have you sort of Iranian-backed other groups f firing, like the Houthis firing on, uh, on Israel. Um, maybe in an attempt to escalate, maybe just to show solidarity, it's hard to, hard to know why. Um, those are very dangerous, right, because I think this could, one of the real worries, I think, for the world is that this spirals into a much bigger regional uh, confrontation. Uh, for a long time, Israel and Hezbollah were trading artillery fire across the border. Uh, there's a certain logic, right? You kill five of our people, we kill five of your people, and so then we're even, we don't escalate more. It's a very dangerous game, right? So something accidentally hits a school, right, or a bus, and then all, right, all bets are off um, the other direction. And so I think... Um, could go. It could get there, but I think that's why we're involved, and that's one of the reasons we're pushing. I think for the ceasefire to become something more, um, more long-lasting than just one day at a time. Easy question. Good question. I was gonna say. <laughs> this is where we take out our Ouija board. <laughs> Look, I think, you know, f political science is not a sufficiently well-developed science to be able to predict that. And I think the part of the problem is that we have pretty good theories that lead us in opposite directions, right? So one theory of conflict resolution says, look, you know, at some point people get tired. Right? They just get tired of the fight. And so when, when, when conditions ripen, right, and people are tired of fight, then there's the opportunity to reach a settlement. And so maybe, right, and so maybe this leads in the long term towards something like, towards something like that. The problem is we have other really compelling theories that say really what you're going to get from this experience of violence is more circling the wagons and more like excluding the other 
and more radicalization and hostility because now the other has shown themselves to be untrustworthy. And if we're negotiating, you don't want to negotiate with untrustworthy types. You know, and we, we just don't know how this will, uh, how this will turn out. So I wish I had a better answer than maybe working someplace else, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is a hard question, but, but I don't think we have options. Like, I don't think this violence can continue. So I think this violence will continue to breed violence, hatred will breed hatred. So I don't, we're running out of options. I don't think we have the luxury now to, to think how to move forward. I think there, the, the both parties must, first of all, this fire must happen. Uh, now, the, now I, I'm not sure, I, th I think enough civilians were killed. Uh, I think enough for the 1,200 Israelis that were uh, killed in, in, on October 7th. And then I think this come needs to, to, there is no way everybody come, you, the US has, as a person who grew up in the Middle East my entire life, I know exactly how the influential role of the US in the region, how it can bring all these parties together, that I, that I know very well. And I also know very well there's not a single Arab country that wants a war with Israel. Nobody wants a war. They fought so many wars and they lost it. Nobody wants more wars. Nobody even has the economic or the need, the need to start a war with Israel. Nobody wants a war with Israel. And everybody acknowledges the role of, of, of the US in the region. There's so so I think if the US can channel all this effort, all this unwavering support to build this peace process, bring everybody to the table with, 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 with a fair and just peace for, for both sides, not that the previous kind of attendance, take this as a, this challenge and this opportunity to build these channels of trust, it's hard. And I know that it's, it's really hard now with our scars on both sides and telling even people now these kind of things in, in Israel or Palestine, it's, it's really, it's, it's, they will look at you and be like, are you serious after all we have been through? So, but, but there is no way out. And I, don't, I, am not, I cannot think of any other option. And I think, I think Anadav says maybe by over time, uh, the groups wear out and, and things get better. But this has been going on for 75 years already. So, so until when? You're an optimist. I, I am, a, but, but this is how I, I cannot, I cannot think of this going more than that another 75 years. Like, it's just, I, I don't, I'm not yeah. seeing any way out, right? Again, I agree with you the bottom line, right? But, yeah, no, there's no, I, I think, but I think that the, I think that this sat, from my perspective, the sad reality is that there's a big status quo bias in general, and given the, um, uh, the sort of structural issues involved here, it's hard to see, I think the most likely outcome, sadly, as you said when you started out, is this particular round will end, and in a few years there will be another round. A few years after that there'll be another, there'll be another round. And I think, um, I think something much more critical has to change or would need to change for that dynamic to be broken. I don't know. It's hard to see how that happens. Bigger than what we're going through right yeah, now. Yeah, yes, because I don't think conflict is the way to, is, I don't think that people react to severe trauma that they're going through by um, opening up and willing to take the risks that need to be taken by Israelis and by Palestinians to reach the, so I'm deep, I'm, that's why I'm deeply pessimistic that this will lead to any sort of um, 
systematic change. It's hard to see a Palestinian leader being able to craft the domestic political coalition that they would need to have in place to reach a long-term agreement with Israel. And it's hard to see an Israeli politician being either willing or able to craft a domestic Israeli coalition to support the, the concessions that they would need to make to Palestinians to reach some sort of stable uh, uh, accommodation. And absent that, it's hard to know how you, how we get there. We can start, we can start imagining about all sorts of things that could change to do that, but it's hard to see something happening from the ground, uh, sort of in, from the bottom up in, in the region. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just recent events have just exposed kind of the, the utter poverty of thinking about the peace process, particularly in the United States and the United States government. I mean, you know, you, if, you, if you just think of how the Biden administration has reacted and approached this, it's, it's kind of completely out of step with reality. I mean, and to continue to talk about the two-state solution in the way that they have and can kind of portray this as just another kind of moment uh, is, is, you know, another moment to kind of allow these parties to, to do what they do while the U.S. just kind of backs, backs Israel is, I think, it just kind of, it's a real missed opportunity, right, for the, the Biden administration. And I, and I think like Nadav and, and Marwa are, are right in the sense that it's incredibly difficult now because the incentives, including the domestic incentives for the parties are so um, kind of misaligned, or at least the timing isn't right. But I don't think that that absolves the United States of trying and using its leverage. I mean, I think it was a major failure of the Biden administration, like their, their policy towards the region when Biden was elected was keep this region off the president's desk, right? Like, do not let this bother the president. He has more important things to do. And like now we're seeing the result of that, right? They utterly failed. And so maybe the silver lining of this, I don't know, maybe I am an optimist too, right? Is that people in the White House understand that they cannot continue to treat this as business as usual and take seriously an opportunity to kind of shape the incentives, provide the types of guarantees that would maybe make some type of movement towards kind of a lasting and dignified peace possible. Because I just, I, I, I mean, I, the, the, the scale of, of the death and destruction and the damage that this is doing on so many different dimensions is just appalling to me. And it's, you know, it's, it's a major failure. If I can build on that, let me be a little optimistic because one thing has changed. I'm rubbing off on you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if it'll lead to anything, but one thing has changed, and it's bound up with Netanyahu and his strategy. All right, so Netanyahu's approach to the problem, to reaching an accommodation with the Palestinians, is to not do it, but not not do it. Right? Is to try and basically convince Israelis, I've got this covered, we can manage it. Right? And the conflagrations that'll happen every once in a while are manageable. And we can live with that cost to us because the cost of Palestinians is a lot more. And so we can kind of manage the conflict. Right? And so there is a sense, at least looking at public opinion polls in Israel today, that this idea of conflict management as opposed to conflict resolution is much less popular than it's been in the past. Right? And so there is, and that does open up avenues for conflict resolutions of one kind or another, I think that doesn't mean they will get there, 
right? And it's not clear to me that conflict management won't come back given the difficulties involved in whatever conflict resolution, whatever that looks like in all sorts of dimensions. But at least in now, it does open up this other, this other space. We'll see if that people there actually take advantage. I want to ask a question, but I'm going to wait. So that I think actually political science has an answer for, right? So I think that the, um, so one, it would be great. So I think I kind of agree with Stephen. I think Israel missed an opportunity when Hamas came to power to say, okay, right, show us that you can pick up the trash on time, right? It's hard, it's hard to govern, right? And so, you know, go ahead and do it. So I think there was, and I think, you know, I think Israel, paraphrasing old Israeli diplomat, Israel also misses lots of opportunities to miss opportunities. Um, and so th things could have looked differently to look at that. Um, I think that uh, on the ground, if you ask both Israelis and Palestinians what they want, they still want self-determination, right? They, they, they don't want to live in a single country with the other, right? And so I think that could change. It seems at the moment at least un, uh, unlikely, but it's possible. I think part of the difficulty is has to do, if you think about this again in a, um, John is here can speak to the sort of security dilemma. Why Israel is missed the opportunity to miss the opportunity, right? But sort of, if you think about this in terms of a security dilemma, then it kind of makes sense. You're not sure about Hamas's intentions. Let's put that, let's just assume, right? You're not don't know what to do. They might be hostile. They might moderate and turn out friendly. So if I gamble, if I, if I, if I gamble on them being moderate and they end up being radical, then, I, then I'm in a much worse, and then I'm much worse off, right? But if I think that they're radical and they're being moderate, then it's okay. So the, the, from that perspective, my rational behavior is to act as if they are radical to begin with. Now that's a problem because that creates, some, you know, the kind of radicalization that might not have happened otherwise, right? So there's this catch-22 that arises from that just um, uncertainty about the intentions of the the others, right? So you don't even have to make any assumptions about them to get to the same kind of outcome. But just let's make this clear. Hamas is one of the problems. Hamas is the, it's not the main problem here. So even before Hamas there was occupation and there was unfair treatment of the Palestinians, there is no Hamas in the West Bank and there are 170 who are killed over the, also in, in, in the West Bank over the last few weeks, right? So, so let's look what the, Hamas is a symptom of the problem. Hamas is not, it's not the main, the main problem. It, 
is a problem is the occupation. The problem is that there is no fair solution for both. There's no fair and just peace process for both. The two entities can coexist together in peace. So, so it's, yes, Hamas is a, is a major issue now, and, and Hamas, it, it was, it's, it's, it was a, this is the greed of, of the oppression and the violence in the, in this district, in the Gaza Strip. But, but, the, but again, let's not just like kind of simplify the, the issue to Hamas. It's not really just about Hamas. Hamas is just one of the problems. There's so many more deeper problems that we need to deal with. And if we don't deal with these deeper problems, we will have thousands of Hamases all over. So that's not going to be the end of it. So we, we legitimize Hamas, and then a, a thousand other Hamas terrorist organizations will, will emerge. So, so, so yeah, so let's just be also uh, clear about it. Hamas is not the only problem here. There was another one in the back. I mean, I think calling your representatives is useful. I, I think um, mass mobilization is probably more useful. I mean, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. You do both of these things, obviously. But, you know, I do think that kind of the, there does seem to be quite a bit of evidence that the White House was surprised with the depth and speed and size of the mobilizations, right? And just the outpouring of support for kind of the ceasefire, right? And, and, and I think, you know, politics and influencing politics is kind of a complicated game. We know there's kind of multiple predictors of what politicians do, but, you know, I do think kind of the Democratic Party, particularly right now, I mean, I think they, do or at least are gaining a pretty acute sense that this is an issue that is going to be potentially very problematic for their for their upcoming electoral prospects, right? And I think, you know, if this is something that you care about, obviously, like this is a time to kind of mobilize and to push and to kind of make noise about this in whatever ways you think you can, right? I mean, I think, you know, whatever else, you know, you might think about Joe Biden or the Democratic Party or whoever is like, you know, at some point they're going to listen to public opinion, right? They, they're office seeking, they want to be reelected. And so to the extent that they kind of understand that there is a potential gap between where they are and where their constituents are, um, that's, I think, you know, probably a necessary step. I don't know if it's a sufficient one, but I think that that's important. Uh, probably be last-ish question. Um, trying to be optimistic, and I, I know it's a, <clears throat> like pretty dire, but see you talked about like, the dearth of focus and energy from particularly Washington on Middle Eastern politics. And this goes back to the Obama administration saying that we're going to try and shift all of our focus priorities uh, in Pacific mm -hmm. and possibly confrontations with China. How do we keep the energy and focus of this, you know, this current moment on trying to find some type of workable solution without, I mean, kind of saw Ukraine, like the, the, the conversation is like we should direct Ukraine and you know, God willing, there is not a conflict in the Pacific with China, but you know, if that were to happen or somewhere else in the world, how do we keep at least some energy focused on trying to find a solution? 
I'm the pessimist in the room. Right? <laughs> so um, I don't know that there is, I don't know that it is possible right now to reach a solution. Right. And so in that context, you know, this sort of maybe the best we can hope for is to stop the killing. Right. That's that would not be bad. Right. And so um, but I think if you don't think a solution is possible now and you're the administration, then it's actually not then you kind of want not to deal with it. Right. The national just to put it in the back burner, leave it to the next administration, whatever that is. And China is still much more important, right, for the United States than, uh, than all of this. And so I think it's a, uh, I think the administration is paying attention to it because of the scale of the, uh, of the uh, killing that's happening, right, and the public response, uh, response to it. Um, but actually, I don't see a long-term reason for them to waste their political capital on this. I could be wrong, right? Biden could get up tomorrow and say Biden has doesn't particularly has you know doesn't particularly love Netanyahu, right? And so who knows what he'll do uh, after this? I will say that the the scuttlebutt in sort of among Israeli talking heads when this happened was that you know sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas the United States is going to force Israel to stop. This was true. Um, this was said very early on uh, in this, and so. So it may not be a response to pressure, right? It may be sort of priced into the Israeli response. Until then, at some point there will be pressure, at some point they'll make a stop, and we'll do this, I don't know. Um, but I actually don't see a lot of structural reasons for the administration to invest in this. I kind of wish it was otherwise, but hard to see it happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I I kind of generally would agree with that, but I would also just say, I mean, the administration's willingness to focus on this issue is endogenous to the noise that people in the population are making about it, right? Like, if you're thinking about dealing with China in four years, if you don't get elected next year, then it's somebody else's problem, right? And so I just think kind of to the extent that the administration can look and they can read the polls right and they can listen to the feedback from their constituents and they can see rallies and if they kind of make that decision that like if we do not devote our limited attention and our limited capabilities like to this particular issue right now right then it's going to be a problem for us in like on election day right like i i do i do agree like they won't move out of the goodness of their hearts or their charity or the fact that they're disturbed by by pictures of, of human suffering something like that, they're, they're going to be kind of rational about it. And I think that the only way that that happens is if they're convinced that this is part of their domestic political calculation. I mean, this is a question uh, mostly for Nadav, but there's me, I count seven, eight, maybe nine of the like credible hypotheses about what explains uh, October 7th as an intelligence failure, as a you know, military failure, and I think there's you know, parts about Hamas that have been explained, but you know, about inside kind of like the security military apparatus in Israel, um, I don't know, maybe sociologically as well. I'm thinking, you know, reading reports that um, certain commandos weren't showing up like for, vo for voluntary duty due to the protests, just as, as one of many things maybe that's completely frivolous but like how do you kind of wait like what what happened here and 
what part of what happened will the Israeli military be able to fix very quickly going forward from a security perspective? And what are kind of persistent issues that are going to pose kind of long-term challenges that might be, you know, invitations for other forms of kind of like contentious challenges from different actors? Yeah. Um, so there were a lot of failures on the, from a military perspective from Israel's side. Uh, too many to count, but a lot of failures. Um, it was not a failure of gathering information, right? So we now already know that Israel knew what Hamas was happening. In fact, there was a um, no, not the, not the Egyptians. There was a, a Egyptians too. There was apparently a someone in Israeli intelligence who, yeah. for months, has been saying um, Hamas is planning exactly this. We, at this point, have zero hours of notice. Right? It's gotten to the point where they can execute it whenever they want, and nobody took her seriously. Right? And so I think that's the main failure. Right? The main failure is the buying into the assumption that we are so much stronger, they are so much weaker, that they cannot inflict something so painful on us. Part of it is techno-optimism. Right? So this is very sophisticated fence and wall, which turns out like the Maginot Line, right, and other big, what right, can be defeated, right? Um, but Israel lost sight of that, and we're so sure that that would happen. In fact, so sure that they shifted units away from the Gaza Strip to the West Bank, right? Uh, and so I think that there are lots of, um, you know, there was also new on October, the midnight October 6th, four in the morning or something, there was a conversation between the head of the Israeli army, the head of the uh, Secret Service, all these people, like, something is happening. Is it just a ploy? Is it just another, like, false alarm? What do we do? And they decided to go back to sleep, right? So there's, there's, a, there's a world in which they responded, and then Hamas still would have crossed the wall, but they probably would have been stopped at the military uh, forces that they eventually overran because they would have had, those forces would have had air support, right? Or doing something. So, so there are lots and lots of military affairs. But I think that conception that the Palestinians aren't going to do this, that they are okay with this conflict management system that Netanyahu's had in place for the last 20 years, I think that's the main failure. Right? And so given that assumption, everything else followed from that. I think um, army, the army, like armies in general, tend to be pretty rational organizations, and they learn. They're unsparing, I think, in their internal critiques of themselves. Um, and so I, I don't think they will make the same mistake. Again, they will make other mistakes, almost certainly. Um, but I think now they have a much higher respect for Hamas's ability uh, and for their uh, unwillingness to live with the status quo. Uh, and so I think that's, yeah, I think they will, I think they will learn from that. Uh, but again, I think there's no, and most people, I think, in the Israeli military will say this, they, they've always known there is no military solution to this. Uh, that, that if there will be a solution, it's a political solution. Uh, and um, but I, don't know if, I don't know how that translates into the politicians actually implementing. Since I was a kid, um, and like, just people just um, like 
talk about this recently because of this attack, but I was just curious on why Palestinians have been mistreated, even in the West Bank, like back in May 2021, where in Sheikh Jarrah, one of the neighborhood in, um, in West Bank, six Palestinian families were displaced to make way for um, Israeli settlers. And that's like very uh, unfair for those Palestinians that have been living there. Um, and um, also like back in April, no, March 2022, during Ramadan, when the Israeli idea uh, attack Al-Aqsa Mosque, um, and like those kind of things are what um, I think would contribute to what Professor um, said about on why there are more like, people like Hamas or any other because people feel frustrated and like start picking up arms because they are like trying to um, I don't know how to say this, English is not my fault anyway, sorry. Um, like to fight for their freedom, I guess, but because it was just um, not fair for those Palestinians, especially in the West Bank, because they are not um, um, not controlled by Hamas. Um, so I was just curious on why does that happen, and not just that, like previous years too. It's just sad to me to see those kind of things happening, you know? and people are just starting talking about this just because of. October 7th, which is also sad for the Israeli people, especially the innocent ones. Um, I think for better or worse, this is, this is what nationalist conflict looks like. And I think when you have two groups, both of whom say, I want control over my political destiny, and I want to exercise that control over my political destiny in the same place, you get violence and you get conflict, and so um, and so I think that's why that's why it looks as um, unhappy as it does. And I think you put your finger on it, right? People want freedom, they want independence. It's true of everybody here, and I think they either have to figure out a way to divide the area in which they control their political destiny, that is, in which they have their freedom, or they have to figure out a way of dividing what that control over their political destiny looks like, right? So some sort of cohabitation in some federal or, or other kind of arrangement. Those are the options other than one side completely winning and getting rid of the other, which has happened historically too. So I think it's not a satisfying answer, but that's I think why it looks as unhappy as it does. Yeah. I mean this is what occupation is, right? And it's, you know, I, I, it's also just not these kind of large scale things, kind of the, you know, the eviction of families in Sheikh Jarrah or the, you know, storming of Al-Aqsa. I mean, it's just hundreds of daily kind of humiliations and oppressions that are just part of the occupation, right? And I think, you know, until that is dismantled or ended in some way as part of some kind of peace agreement like you're just going to see this and I think you know it's just I, I think part you know part of it is kind of the the domestic political dynamics in Israel part of it is kind of the ideological orientation of, of some people in kind of the Israeli political coalition and Israeli domestic politics but yeah, I mean this is just it's it's not a tenable situation right and and I think 
you know, as, as you said, like there's, there's all sorts of kind of outcomes that we see from this. I want to thank our panelists because not only for their participation and their thoughtful responses, but you know, as you can probably gather, this is even for people who study the region, the conflicts, the people, this is hard. And um, I think I appreciated Stephen's, you know, starting off to say like, this is about human beings and as political scientists, we often like to kind of take the 50,000 foot view. Um, that's kind of what we do in the way we see the world. But, but ultimately, um, I want to thank these three human beings for, uh, you know, for being here and for sharing their knowledge and their expertise with us and for engaging. So thanks, all three of you. And and thanks, everyone. Thank you all for spending yeah. From the 1050 Bascom crew, thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more of 1050 Bascom, Give us a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud.